1: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
0: It's a beautiful morning. Yeah been a great fan of Governor David Patterson for over a quarter century. As a politician, a personality, as someone who I first became a fanatical fan of when he was a substitute host on WEVD for Jay Diamond, I am always impressed with Governor Patterson's knowledge of history, with his passion for everything from sports to politics, and with his incredible, incredible quick wit and sense. Of humor. By the way, all of that is on display in his memoir, Black, Blind, and In Charge. And I'm thrilled that he's agreed to stay up late with us uh, tonight. Governor Patterson, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Well, Frank, it's good to be here. And I was rather shocked to hear what they did with James Madison's house and who accepted the contribution and allowed it to be turned into more of a political statement against the Times as opposed to a um, uh, memorial to the contributions he made, particularly, as you said, to the uh, passing of the Constitution. And uh, even before that, he was an activist during the uh, time of the, uh, mm. uh, you know, obviously the, the uh, our – Independence from Great Britain, from Britain. Uh, England.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a head scratcher uh, on this one. Uh, b- by the way, I-, I have to take advantage of your expertise as a- as a baseball fan. You and I share the curse of being long suffering Met fans, and now we're at the uh, the All Star break, the traditional halfway point in the season. Mets are looking pretty good so far, but as any good Met fan knows, you're almost waiting for the rug to be pulled out from other- under you and for Things to go south. How do you see the, uh, the second half of the season going for the Mets at this point?
2: Well, for the
1: first time, I actually think that there's going to be a close race between the Mets and the Braves for uh, the National League East championship. And either of them and the Los Angeles Dodgers, well, who would have the best record in baseball? This will be the first year that the team with the best record at the end of the season in each league will have a bye. They'll have three or four mm. days off. Now, the problem with baseball is when you take three or four days off, it's different than if you take three or four days off in, say, basketball where you're running up and down the court. So you probably need the rest. But baseball is a precision game. Also, now the pitchers are going to be pitching with five, six, seven days rest, which throws them off. So it be very interesting to see how this season goes. However, the Mets went out and got some older players um, and uh, with reputations, and they have uh, performed magnificently, mm. like uh, Strolling Marte, who is going to be on the All-Star team uh, tonight, later on. And I think because of that sort of professionalism that they have, it's infected the rest of the team. Mm. And I don't think that there's going to be a Mets soon this year. I,
0: I, I, hope you're, I hope you're right. Fingers crossed. The, the All-Star game is tonight, and uh, I'm wondering—I'm going to watch it. I'm looking forward to watching it. But do you think in the era of interleague play, especially now with uh, both leagues having the, uh, the designated hitter rule and so forth and those lines kind of being blurred between AL and NL, do you think the All-Star game has sort of lost some of its luster these days? I
1: think it's lost some of its luster these days, and I think it lost some of its luster years ago when um, baseball really was the number one game in in sports at the time, and the All-Star game was a big deal, Uh, and the World Series was a big deal because you would root for the league's champion. Mm. One of the things that I think changed that was in 1970. Eight, I believe it was when the Dodgers went up two nothing against the Yankees in the world series and the LA fans and some of the commentators made these nasty remarks about New York. I think New Yorkers came together. And even though I was a Mets fan, I rooted for the Yankees who won that world series uh, in, in 1978, because then it became a battle of cities and not a battle of leagues.
0: Uh, that That is interesting. I, I was uh, I was completely ignorant of the sort of New York patriotism that was on play, uh, was uh, was at, at hand in that World Series. You know, I, I alluded a little earlier to the fact that you're so good on the radio, and uh, we're very lucky to have you as a regular contributor on WABC, a regular co-host of the Cats at Night show. You fill in on all sorts of shows. But you were terrific on, as I mentioned, filling in for Jay Diamond on WEVD, terrific with your own show on W war and on uh, AM 970 in New York that is the exception among politicians when you talk about politicians who've tried to make that transition from from the you know political soapbox to the microphone there's a handful that were good there's you there's Ed Koch there's Buddy Cianci maybe one or two others but most of them tend to not work out so well they tend to work out kind of like Mario Cuomo did when he tried to make that transition what is it about you that makes you so able to handle that talk radio transition when so many other politicians who've tried haven't been able to do so?
1: Well, when I was growing up in the 60s, there wasn't the technology available for me to get the news and to read and understand, you know, um, books I read were um, on vinyl records. They were uh, uh done by the American Foundation for the Blind, but if you wanted to know what was happening day to day, you weren't going to find it out. So radio was my resource. It was my newspaper. It was my method of informing myself, and the more I did it, the more I really dreamed of perhaps being a part of it one day, and I actually got three or four friends of mine and I using two or three of those old, um, uh, you know, tape recorders, and we recorded for for 24 straight hours, uh, take, taking turns, um, uh, I think by the time this project was over, my friends were really ready to disown me. <laughs> but I was, I was fascinated by radio and wanted to be on the radio from the time I was probably 10 or 11 years old.
0: 24 so straight actually,
1: hours? Yeah, we, we, we actually kept shows going and you know, different shows that we did with each other for 24 straight hours.
0: Uh, That is, that's got to be some sort of a record. That's very impressive. I I remember when I used to listen to you when you were on in the afternoons in New York, there was one aspect of uh, Alex Bennett's program that you sort of rebranded and repurposed as your own. You called it Governor's Island. For people that may not have heard that and may not remember either when you did it or when Alex Bennett did it, how would that work? I want to see if I could steal that idea and bring it back.
1: What I would do is I would ask people to call up and to pick a topic that they wanted to debate. And after the two debated, um, whoever the winner was would stay on. And then the next caller could call with, so let's say the person that won the debate was a person of p- political uh, philosophy that's conservative. The next caller calls up and that caller takes a very conservative position forcing the champion to debate, let's say, the more liberal position. So it was a test of how well do you understand your adversary? If necessary, could you state your adversary's view uh, accurately? And the exercise I thought was particularly interesting because, uh, boy, there was a woman, I remember her name, Cheryl Blue, Hmm. a serious conservative woman, African-American, but she would flip on the dime and you would and when she got finished you thought AOC was talking. <laughs> and, and she was, I think, a two time champion of Governor's Island.
0: That's pretty impressive. I am going to try and bring that back. We may have to have you be the uh, the guest judge. You know, speaking of AOC, uh, you got a lot of attention recently for some comments that you made on uh, John Matiti's program where you uh, said essentially that uh, AOC and her wing of the party have very little influence and she's largely a media creation. There does seem to be quite a uh, quite a dichotomy in the Democratic Party these days from sort of the uh, the squad wing of the party and sort of the mainstream democratic wing of the party uh, we have a lot of primaries coming up here in New York in the congressional races next month. How do you see that dichotomy playing out both here in New York and around the country
1: Well, I think that that has happened in the Democratic Party where it's being taken over by a far more progressive wing and honestly the way AOC got elected she outworked an opponent who hadn't been seen in his district for 20 years and but those are the only seats that the um, uh, super progressives or even those who consider themselves socialists have won they've only won when their predecessors were just absentee Mm. they assumed that they were going to win they didn't campaign, and these people outworked them, and they rightly did win. But what happened is that it became such a phenomena that, for instance, when Amazon was going to put its headquarters in uh, New York and do all this building uh, in in New York, um, and then there was an outcry after Governor Cuomo named Amazon as, uh, you know, and this project that they were going to do. That AOC was giving credit for Amazon being run out, the, out of the state. And that's not what happened. What happened was the elected officials in the areas that they were going to build in were never notified. Mm. And Governor Cuomo had a press conference by himself and basically took all the credit. And it infuriated them. And this fight was going back and forth. And Amazon, not wanting to get in the middle of it, decided to pull out. Somehow that became AOC. She wasn't involved. And I'm not. Uh, accusing her of saying that uh, she was the one to do it. She didn't do it. The media did. And I think that that even earlier in your show and even previously on uh, Dominic's show, the conversations about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter wishes they could make a difference in the communities they Mm -hmm. are generally not listened to. They were back uh, after the Eric Garner –
0: uh,
1: uh, incident. Uh, yeah. incident back in 2014, but they then just be- went, you know, the um, money they've raised and these houses they bought and these other situations that they've jumped into. Uh, I think, again, uh, they, they get more benefit out of publicity than actual work, hmm.
0: Uh, we're talking with Governor David Patterson, uh, clearly a student of talk radio, a regular contributor at WABC in New York, author of the book Black, Blind, and In Charge. He's the former governor of New York State, former New York State Democratic Party chairman, the first black governor in the history of New York State, and uh, cer- certainly somebody who has assumed that role of elder statesman of the Democratic Party, even though he's not that old, in a, in a seamless uh, manner. Governor, in terms of the midterm elections uh, nationally, It seems like the Republicans are banking on the inflation issue to deliver possibly both houses of Congress to their side. The Democrats seem to be trying to make all these swing districts a referendum on the legalization of abortion rights and a uh, referendum on what the Supreme Court did on abortion rights. How do you see uh, the midterm elections playing out in general and sort of those two sides of the coin, the inflation aspect of it, which would seem to favor the GOP and the abortion aspect of it, which would seem to favor the Democrats?
1: I think that right now, um, Americans in each state are suffering from higher prices at the gas pump um, uh, costs. At grocery stores in New York, they're saying that people are now having to spend $500 more each month than they were at this time last year, just to get to get the basic services and and uh, the resources that they need. When that situation occurs, you find that voters are far more pragmatic. They are thinking more about how they are going to be able to pay their rent and how they're going to be able to fill their gas tank. And I think because of that, uh, this will favor the Republicans in the uh, the midterms. And they have an opportunity, remember in 2010, they won, I believe, 60 seats in the House. They could win more this year. Mm. They could win the majority in the House, they really could. They only need to win one seat in the Senate to take the majority there. So I think the majority of the Senate is bequeathed to the Republicans and, and and now the question is, how high can they run up the score? And so I, I think they are going to win on those issues. If you notice, when times are better and people are basically comfortable, this is when some of the more pristine issues – and I mean pristine just in the sense that they are um, uh, not everyday issues, but they do happen to a lot of people, such as um, – when you have a ten-year-old girl in Ohio going mm. to another state to get an abortion after she was raped, and you, you know it, it's a horrible situation, but those types of issues and even you know some of the uh, the victories by the extreme groups on, in both parties tend to come more when times are better. Right now, times are worse, mm. and I think that you're going to see um, a a real reaction to the high inflation rate. Mm -mm. And if I hear inflation get blamed on Putin one more time, (laughs) I think... I'm going to commit my first violent act in life <laughs> against that person.
0: Uh, what about in blue states like New York, uh, specifically the race for your old job, the governor's race? The conventional wisdom has Hochul uh, with a uh, a, pretty, a pretty substantial lead. A lot of Republicans think this race is going to be more competitive than a traditional statewide race in New York generally is. How do you handicap the Hochul-Zeldin race?
1: Well, what Republicans would hope is that what happened in Nassau County would happen around the state where the district, uh, where the county executive, Laura Curran, very popular, very well liked, but she took the wrong position on bail reform. And she followed Todd Kaminsky, a senator who was running for DA. He got beaten by 21 points. She got beaten by one uh, percentage point, but that was enough for Bruce Blakeman who I've known for a number of years and happen to like him, Uh, uh, he became the new county executive. Could you then take that situation and manufacture it into a Republican win for governor? I don't believe that's going to be the case. Now, Kathy Hochul has had to negotiate with the legislature. Kathy Hochul, in my opinion, uh, and I've known her a long time, is what John Katsimatidis calls a common sense Democrat. She's not that far out, but she has had to deal with the legislature, mm. which makes her look far out sometimes. But let's just remember, Frank, and you remember this well, George Pataki, his best friends in the in around the Capitol were Union Local eleven ninety nine and the United Federation of Teachers. They were very progressive organizations. But Pataki found ways to um, to appease them. And had he been a Democrat, the Republicans would have called him um, a radical. Yeah, you were a but lot was, tougher was, on
0: 1199 than Governor Pataki was.
1: Oh, they got on my last uh, nerve.
0: I remember. Uh, I remember those commercials.
1: Yeah, You know, um, they had a commercial with a blind person saying, Governor, you let me down. <laughs> it's the first time I ever saw a blind person on a commercial unless it was Stevie Wonder. So, I mean, it was really a horrible way that they treated me. And another thing they did, Frank, I was the first African-American governor uh, to be elected. And in 2009, because the 1199 didn't like my budget, which called for a lot of cutbacks, we had to do it because we had a $21.3 billion deficit. The state has never had a deficit even close to that amount of money at that time. And because I made some cuts to areas they didn't like, they arranged for me to get booed when I was introduced at the black and Puerto Rican legislative dinner. And as you can clearly see, I haven't forgotten it.
0: (laughs) Uh, No, uh, clearly not. Hey, uh, one of the things that I've been meaning to ask you is because you were the chairman of the Democratic Party as well. I, obviously, you're very familiar with Tom Swazi. You guys go back uh, a ways, uh, both from uh, Long Island. And uh, I think your fathers actually were partners together at one point.
1: That's correct.
0: He ran uh, a campaign that seemed to resonate with a lot of common sense people, putting aside Democrats. Were you he finished third behind Jamani Williams, who didn't even run much of an active primary campaign at all. What was it about either Swazi himself or his messaging, which really failed to catch fire among Democratic primary voters?
1: I think his messaging was creative. He knows the issues as well as anyone. He is a very, very dynamic personality. But what I've always thought, and I've said this to Tom, is that when he talks to an audience, he's talking at them. Mm. He's not the person that seems to solicit the views of the people that he's talking to the way other candidates are. Uh, When you watch uh, even uh, Lee Zeldin, when he speaks to an audience, you think you're in his living room. He's very good at that. Uh, Kathy Hochul, he's going to run against is extremely good at that. She can make uh, an audience feel that she's completely um, interested in everything that they think. And I'm not saying that that is um, uh, a disguise. I think that she really is that way. It's just that some people transmit that feeling better than others.
0: Hmm. One of the things that we're hearing a lot of news about on the national scene is these uh, January 6th committee hearings uh, I think a lot of Republicans and a lot of Trump supporters are sort of shrug their eyes, almost glaze over. It has very little impact on them. A lot of Democrats uh, seem to think that this is one of the defining political issues of our time. As a lawyer, a former prosecutor, and as a you know a political strategist par excellence, what do you think the long term legal and political implications of these January sixth hearings are going to be?
1: I think long term we're going to go back to how we actually felt on the night of january 6th and uh the uh, morning of january 7th i really think that um if it were if it were any place else except the capital then it might have been perceived as a a riot you know an an outbreak of, of violence but the same way in the law if you shoot another human being you are uh terrible when we put you away for 20 years. If you shoot a police officer, that's different. Um, uh, There are some states it's a a death penalty offense to shoot a police officer because you're not just shooting another human being, you're shooting someone who has, is representing the government, is representing uh, our freedoms and who is a protector of our freedoms. I think because it happened at the Capitol, It is a lot more important than a lot of people are trying to make it, and they go on and on about Black Lives Matter had a protest in Washington, and Trump had to hide in the basement of the White House. They make a big deal about that, but the fact is, had that happened in reverse and Biden had to uh, hide in the basement of the White House— basements are familiar to him, um, <laughs> he, <would laughs> he they would then say, oh, it was the security, and it was the Democrats who were in charge of the security. Um, d- d- uh, I've heard that this is Nancy Pelosi's fault because she was the one that ran the D.C. police. That's actually not true. The Speaker of the House and the leader of the other party in the Senate, so that both parties are represented, they do that, And I think that it was, you know, when you remember what you saw, it was shocking. And we had a situation where I think we're lucky that something didn't happen to some of our congressional representatives or senators or, God forbid, the vice president of our
0: country. So do you think that will end up hurting Trump if he runs again, which appears likely?
1: If he ran again, I don't think it would hurt him too much unless he himself spends too much time on it. Uh And I think that that was his downfall in 2016, is that he was beating some issues to death that finally the same people who abandoned Hillary in 2016 to vote for Trump turned around and went back to the Democratic candidate in in, in 2020. But it could could very easily uh, come back to him, I think, if he... Um, runs in twenty twenty four. He'd be hard to beat. You know, there's
0: in the both the general and in the primary.
1: In the general and the primary. Wow. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't even given the phone number, but people are lining up to ask you questions. You want to take some calls for old time's sake, Governor?
1: Why? Sure. Why uh, not?
0: <laughs> all right. Dennis is on Long Island. Uh, Dennis, you're on with Governor Patterson.
1: Hello, Governor. How are you doing? How are you? Great. Great. I'm good. Dennis, what's up? Um. I was uh, just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on the possible of Michelle Obama getting
0: the Democratic nomination. I don't see how it is. D- Dennis, uh, y- y- your phone's getting a little screwy, but I think we made out your question. I know O'Reilly raised this with John Katzmatidis yesterday, the possibility of Michelle Obama running for president and getting the Democratic nomination. What do you think, Governor?
1: I think Mich- if Michelle Obama ran for president, she would have a chance to get the Democratic nomination. I don't think Michelle Obama wants to run for president. That's just my sense of her.
0: I, I can't imagine why she would. She gets all the benefits of uh, of having a you know a high profile position like that, including Secret Service protection, without any of the headaches. Chris in the Catskills, what's your question for the governor?
2: Uh, good morning, Frank. Show prep and questions are out of this world amazing, uh, Governor. When you when you were Governor of New York, I was really rooting for you to pick uh, Congressman Maurice Hinchy, your former colleague in the Assembly, rather than. Uh, Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand to replace Hillary Clinton. Um, And now Marie Sinchi's daughter, uh, Michelle, is a state senator, and she's killing it campaign. And she has a district she can keep it for the rest of her life. She is now going to be serving with Sarah Hanna uh, Shreska, a socialist who was one of the two that was victorious. I see a problem emerging now in the Democratic Party is that it's all about movements. You're either with the socialist movement, you're with the militant progressive movement. Nobody runs on platforms or ideas anymore, and the progressives are using psychology, Aristotelian rhetorical theory psychology that says people vote based on values and emotions and not the truth. Um, Where do you see, like, platforms and policy wonks coming back into the Democratic Party?
0: Uh, Good question, Chris. Thank you.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think he inadvertently answered the question when, when he delivered it in that the, that's exactly what's happening. We are voting now based more on emotions and based on you know information that uh, was probably manufactured from cable television. And I mean this on both sides. And uh, it, it would be nice to get back to some of the actual issues and debate mm. their validity and, and their importance so i I, I think he 's right, but there 's going to be a, a problem particularly in the Democratic Party uh, where it 's presenting itself more so than in the Republican
0: party right now uh, Two quick questions before we run out of time, Governor. One has to do with the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. you uh, campaigned for him, you endorsed him in the Democratic primary he won the general election largely on a um, on a getting tough on crime. Uh, platform, uh, won almost 70% of the vote in the general. He's been uh, mayor for uh, seven and a half months. How do you think uh, Eric Adams is doing so far?
1: I think he's doing well. Uh, I've said this to John TDS a lot, and I'll say it to you, Frank. I don't think mayors affect the crime rate as much as the public thinks they can. In, In other words, it's not that Eric Adams isn't doing enough. Uh, Somebody on Dominic's show said something about they needed to bring back, uh, you know, some of the street tactical patrols. They've actually done that. They just don't call it by that name. And the caller was right because the caller said that um, as a Democrat, Adams wouldn't want to use that name. But uh, in Harlem, I haven't seen as many police around here as I have seen in the last few months and didn't see for the past you know, three or four years, uh, I think he's off to a good start. Now, in the end, what he has done, he's said a lot. And when you say a lot, the next question is, when are you gonna deliver? And that's why I think it's gonna be very difficult because I think that the crime rate is uh, a, a matter of communities that were already on the verge flipping into uh, almost, Mob rule because of the COVID virus. And then inevitably, uh, you've got no socialization and you've got younger people, uh, uh, you know, not being in organizations, but winding up in gangs. Mm.
0: Uh, Lastly, Governor, next hour, I'm going to talk with a fellow whose grandfather uh, died, possibly uh, chasing a UFO as a uh, as a fighter pilot in 1948. I'm curious, do you have a take on the whole UFO question in general? Now there's been congressional hearings. It seems like this issue, which was once very fringe, has become increasingly mainstream. Where do you come down on this kind of thing?
1: Well, you know, it goes back to my old radio days, growing up, uh, listening to Long John Neville and uh, sometimes Barry Farber and, of course, Art Bell and, uh, and, and now yourself who have uh, delved into this issue. I've always thought there's something to it. I have a very dear friend of mine that told me that President Clinton told him that there is something to it, that they know more than they're actually saying. And I have a personal friend who was a big-time college basketball star in the 70s. I mean, you would know his name. We're close friends, and he claims that in 1985 he was abducted. Uh, and held and tested he and another person and then eventually released. And I know one thing, I can't say definitively that it did happen to him, but I can say I know that he believes that it did. So there's a lot, I'll Hmm. probably hang on and listen about the uh, (laughs) uh, person you're going to talk about who was killed uh, while pursuing a UFO and the family feels they covered it up. One thing is for sure, there's been a cover-up. It's almost like the JFK assassination. Whether it was done by Lee Harvey Oswald or not is one thing, but it was covered up, and the government admits to, to that. So we never really know the answers to those questions. But the UFO situation is something that's continuing. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence. President Trump, by the way, released a lot of evidence when he was in office, which I don't know that many people know that. But it's aided those who are trying to get us to see that there are beings that are not from hmm. uh, from here. Very. So all I can say, Frank, is that um, the Chinese say that they think uh, that there may be life on Mars. And I would think they can say that, but we'll be the first to send them foreign aid. <laughs>
0: Governor, the next time uh, we get to talk, we have to get into the China issue, which uh, you've become something of an expert on as well. It's always such a treat to talk with you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person soon and doing this again on the radio soon.
1: Thanks so much, Frank, and congratulations on uh, your national show now.
0: Thank you very much. Please give my best to, uh, to Mary and Anthony as well. Take care. Bye. The great Governor David Patterson. I love talking to him. I could talk with him all day long. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other
1: Side of Midnight. midnight.